Hey everybody, I wanted to take a couple moments to jump on and go live as today is release day for my new book, The Road Away From God. This feels like a talk show right now, The Road Away From God, how love finds us even as we walk away. And I hope for those of you who do follow me, who've been so kind to go on this walk with me, I hope you're not already tired of this because you, you know the thing, it's like... You've got a new book out. Uh, I'm talking about it. I don't know if you're tired of hearing me talk about it. Uh, it is a really special day for me, and this book feels really special. It's been a long time coming. It took me a long time to write, and this road has taken me a lot longer to actually walk. So I'm so thankful to all of you who have been so supportive. And what I thought I would do today is I wanted to do simultaneously a little Instagram Live there would also be a Zeitcast, just because I thought that would be fun. So I uh, want to do part one of a little bit of a series on the book, but also want to open up to some Q&A here in just a few minutes. So if you've got questions about the book, um, I would love to take a little bit of time to do that too. And we'll capture it forever uh, in this little recording of the Zeitcast. I do want to say, first of all, because I'm seeing so many people that I love, Madeline Jones, mother to Julius Jones, uh, whom I love so dearly and has been so supportive to me and I really feel like has become a spiritual mother for so many of us. Madeline, it's so good to see you. Kevin Sweeney, my good friend, we just recorded a podcast the other day and had the best, best time. Thank you for the congratulations. That's kind. Um, so happy to see already so many people who I really love. But yeah, it's a big day. So all kinds of emotions, all kinds of things. Um, if you'll permit me, because uh, I don't want to do too much plugging here. So tonight here in Edmond, uh, in my hometown, we're doing um, a bit of a launch party at Commonplace Books here in Edmond. There will be wine, there will be bourbon, there will be cheese, uh, etc. I'm going to be doing a short reading and uh, signing some books, hanging out, that kind of thing. That'll be at 6.30 Central Time tonight. So if you're within drive a distance, would love you come. Hi, Natasha from The Deconstructionist. It's awfully good to see you. Uh, yeah, so I'll just jump right into things. So the first chapter in the book is called... Um, it's funny as I look down, to, you can tell my head is scrambled day. The first chapter of the book is called The Road Called God Forsaken. And everything really happening in this book is, um, I mean, it all comes from a deep place. None of this has been abstract for me. None of this has been cerebral or intellectual exercise. In fact, I feel like that's part of the reason why this book was so long in the making is that I kind of needed to live further into the story. So I want to kind of take a breath um, before I talk about uh, this particular place, this particular part of the road, the road called God Forsaken, because I think it's important not to, not to skip ahead from that place. Since this book does use as a through line this story from the Gospels from Luke 24 of the road to Emmaus, uh, I think it's easy to have uh, uh, preconceptions about what the book is. Uh, and I do think it's a kind of resurrection book, but maybe not quite in, in the way that you think. Um, it's not prescriptive. I've been with a lot of people who are on this walk, and I actually think that not only it's unhelpful, but sometimes it can be kind of dangerous to try to steer people, uh, try to tell them exactly where they're supposed to go, 
when this walk for everybody, this road is deeply personal. And I really do believe this, that everybody has the inner GPS that they need. Uh, it takes some time to get the kind of clarity that we need to know where we're supposed to walk next and disillusionment and disorientation is part of the process. But it was very important for me that this book not feel prescriptive and that it not feel like it's pushing people to try to get to a place that they're not ready for. Because I know, and I don't know if this rings true for any of you, I know that in my own experience, in the times when I've tried to kind of fast forward to some kind of resurrection, when I've tried to make some kind of new life happen, uh, that hasn't worked out some, uh, so well. Um, so the idea is not to kind of fast forward through any kind of stages. I feel like this particular road called God forsaken is not only important, but I think actually sitting in that place of God forsakenness is absolutely necessary. Keep in mind that for those of you, and this might not be all of us, but for those of you that have any kind of a background with Hebrew scripture or Christian scripture, then it's actually the language of the Psalms. It's the Psalm of David that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are not original to Jesus on the cross. He's quoting from the Psalms. And the reason that I believe that an expression like this is in the Psalms, which is a hymn book, which is a prayer book, think about the way that it canonizes this experience of God forsakenness. That someone who's considered this uh, kind of epic figure in scripture, um, this is kind of hardwired in the journey, is that everybody has to go through the path, everybody has to go down this route of God forsakenness. Now, I think what actually happens is if any of us feel like we're abandoned by God, if any of us feel like we're alone, um, instead of having that experience validated the way that the Psalms will, a lot of times people try to talk us out of this. A lot of times people tell us, uh, well, of course your feelings are wrong, you can't trust that, etc., and try to skip ahead. But I think there's a reason. Keep in mind that 60 to 70% 60 of the Hebrew Psalms can be classified as Psalms of lament. I think there's a reason why that there's this kind of space that's given within the Psalter, within the hymn book of the church, within the prayer book of the church, um, for this experience of God forsakenness. When you are in the middle of that place, that is reality for you. And there's nothing anybody is going to be able to say that's going to make that reality different. So what I would hope to do, especially in this part one, would not be to try to force you or to steer you um, out of a place that maybe is where you need to be right now. There are reasons that people can feel and do feel God forsaken. And in that place, I don't think what we need is for someone to come along and to tell us not to trust our own senses, to tell us that what we see, what we feel, what we hear, what we perceive is somehow wrong. But actually, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be psychologically deep here or anything like that, but I do think this is just the nature, this is the nature of the spiritual life in so many ways. We actually have to go deeper into that experience. And I think often what happens is when we go into that place of abandonment, when we go into that place of God forsakenness, 
what we desperately want, or at least what I desperately want, is an escape route. I don't want to be in that place. I don't want to feel this way anymore. So I, I will desperately attempt to find something else or somebody else who will tell me that I don't need to be here, that I don't need to be here now. Uh, try to talk myself into uh, the idea that I'm not here now. I don't really want to do a bunch of inside baseball, but for those who have experience with the charismatic tradition, you know there's this whole thing of the word of faith, in which that's kind of the idea, is that you manipulate reality with your words. And so I've heard, for example, these certain kind of word of faith preachers who would say that the reason Job in the Hebrew Bible suffered the way they did is because he had a negative confession. And the idea is, if you can speak positively enough, if you can adjust your reality enough with your words, if you can have a positive enough attitude, well, then you don't have to suffer at all. And I don't know how you're going to feel about this, because I feel like whenever I say anything about like kind of word of faith preachers or these kind of hyper-charismatic prosperity gospels, everybody's going to say, yeah, ha, 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 that's, that's hilarious. Isn't it funny that, that anybody would say that? You know what's wild? is that on the spirituality circuit that's a kind of more new agey and for a lot of folks who i think would self-describe as being really progressive a lot of people talk this way a lot of people talk this way you do you know how enlightened quotation marks some of the people i've known are and i really don't mean this to make fun uh, but of folks who would consider themselves to be on these very enlightened, like deep spiritual journeys, and who are not fundamentalists at all, they're not conservative at all, wouldn't self-identify like with a Christian tradition, anything like that, but who have some version of, you know, uh, no one has to be in poverty so long as they get their mind right. Nobody has to have any kind of loss so long as they have the right mentality. Uh, I remember having a conversation with somebody like this years ago um, who would consider himself to be like an incredibly open person, a deeply spiritual person, and not in a Christian way. Uh, but actually, in that context, we were talking about justice issues, and we were talking specifically about, you know, I was talking about some things I've learned, ways I've been shaped by the black church tradition, and they said to me, you know, what I really don't, what I don't, what I'm not comfortable with, with a lot of the, the voices that I hear and this kind of more like black prophetic tradition, and I'm, I'm just telling you what they said, is, uh, I mean, like, think about, like, Oprah. I mean, Oprah just decided that she didn't have to live in that place. Oprah just decided that she, she wasn't going to live in poverty. Oprah decided that she wasn't going to live without success. And it just seems like if more and more people understood that all they had to do was just decide, I was like, what? I, did, I was a little bit shocked by it, because this is not somebody who would be, this is not fundamentalism. Uh, per se. And yet this is exactly what I see and hear in all kinds of directions. It's like this idea is that if you have the right mantra, if you have the right confession, if you kind of, if, if you click your heels together three times, then you ought to be able to convince yourself of anything. And there are people who would consider themselves to be incredibly open-ended spiritually who believe that just as much as anybody in these kind of word of faith circles. Well, I think it's all hokum. I don't think it's ever helpful to to live in denial. And I think that's what that is. And that's called denial. I think when you're not able to speak honestly about the place that you are, I think when you're not able to tell the truth about the things that you feel, I think when you're not able to narrate the, re, the truth of your own experience without fear of censorship, I don't think anything good comes from that ever. And yet, whether we're in faith circles 
or whether we're in places again that really aren't anything that look like Christian spirituality, there's a lot of pressure to do that very thing. Uh, sometimes the pressure may even come from within us that precisely because we're we're not comfortable where we are, of course we want a way out. Sometimes I think you have to walk a little bit deeper. I think you have to walk a little bit further into the experience. Thank you for preaching with me, Tony Caldwell. <laughs> that's an, that amen means a lot coming from Tony in particular. So I want to talk just a little bit further about this about this experience of God forsakenness, and specifically in such a way to hopefully um, encourage some of you who are in that place um, that you not feel alone. Uh, that you feel a little bit less lonely because actually the way uh, even the book that I talk about this story from the Gospels, I actually feel like, and I don't feel like I'm pulling this out of my rear end. I think it's what's actually there. Part of what we see in the story is we have these two disciples who are experiencing deep disillusionment. They both have been followers of Jesus. They're still very much part of the Jewish tradition, but they understand themselves to be part of a reform movement uh, that is, honors Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one, and now Jesus has been killed. So what was the safe space, what was the sacred space of Jerusalem, has now become a very unsafe space for them. Uh, it's now a place where there's yellow crime tape. It's uh, the place that once was a sacred space, now is a crime scene. So now, instead of Jerusalem being a place where they could have got refuge before, now they're walking away from Jerusalem. And I'm convinced that the function of this, literarily and theologically in the story, is that for all intents and purposes, they're walking away from God. They're walking away from faith. They're walking away from their idea of what, of, of what God is, who God is, all of that. And one of the things I find so remarkable about this story is that you have these two people who are simply sharing the depths of their pain. They're both walking this road of disillusionment. They're both walking, uh, let me use a phrase here from Robert Bly, uh, they're walking the road of ashes, descent, and grief, I think is how he puts it. Uh, they're walking the path of despair, but they're not walking it alone. And I don't think it's incidental that it's while they're walking this road together and they're sharing this really profound pain, they're sharing the deepest anguish, the agony really of their souls, that something incredibly sacred happens to them. This is the one of the reasons that I'm not freaking out about people leaving the institutional church, even for someone who uh, is still very much connected to faith community and believes in faith community, believes that they can be helpful. Um, because for one, and goodness, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's so much I want to say here. For one, I really believe actually that for anyone to be a whole person, for anybody to be an integrated person, I think this is a road at some point in your life you actually have to walk. And that it's actually crucial that you have a sense of permission, which is, by the way, what I feel like uh, elders will give us. Elders, not necessarily, again, within a Christian community, in any context. Elders in our lives, anybody who is uh, an authority figure, a kind of parental kind of figure, that's what we need is people who will bless us to walk the road that we need to walk, who, who will give us this kind of space. That's what elders do. Um, the father and the story of the prodigal uh, son that Jesus gives us, right? His kid asks for his inheritance early, and it's insulting and, and all the things. He knows it's going to be misspent, 
but he gives him the keys. Hey, I love you too, Steve Wright. Uh, he get, he's still giving him the keys to the family car because that's what elders do is they give us a sense of permission to go on the journey that we need to get on, go on rather than trying to tell us what to do. And my sense of this is because actually, and I, I make this little disclaimer in the book, nobody's ever come at me here, but I feel like it's an important disclaimer to make. Um, in a time in which rightly there's a lot of sensitivity, maybe historically speaking for the first time, uh, the right kind of sensitivity from Christians around Judaism and how we speak about Jewish faith. Because what I don't want to do is kind of say, so the disciples get disillusioned with Jerusalem, the sacred city where the temple is. Uh, therefore, they're disillusioned with Judaism and they got to go on the road and now they're going to have a revelation of God. <laughs> because that's a, actually, I think the things that I'm saying, and I don't mean this to be presumptuous, but I think any mature form of religion, no matter what it looks like, everybody has to walk this path. Um, everybody has to be disillusioned from the church, the synagogue, the mosque. Within Inside of every tradition, for the story to become your own, everybody has to become disenchanted at some point. Everybody has to walk this kind of path. So the idea, of course, is not for me that the Hebrew story is, is incomplete, um, because I think if all we had was the Jewish tradition, I think we get this in the Hebrew Bible. I think we get it in the movement from the priests to the prophets, is that people have to walk to the margins. People have to walk to the outskirts of the thing. They have to walk from the inside to the outside. Oh, yeah, I feel like I'm preaching a little bit now. They have to walk from the inside to the outside to get to where the truth is. And the way that we're pushed from the inside to the outside normally is calamity. It's tragedy, it's pain, it's crisis, what pushes us to get there. And no matter what you believe about God, for that matter, no matter what you believe about anything, everybody gets pushed to have to walk this kind of path. I think it's necessary to have to walk this kind of path. No matter where you come from, no matter where you are, everybody has to walk this kind of road. So, and what part of what I think is important in saying that is that it's really not even um, just like a unilateral judgment on everything bad. Like it's, it's everything, everything's awful that we experience inside of Jerusalem. Everything is bad that we experience the temple. Well, of course that's not true. Sacred spaces are profoundly important. And I would really actually only want to affirm, and I think this is where, why a lot of us um, carry a lot of really deep pain. It's precisely because inside of certain kind of sacred spaces, that we saw a lot of good and we saw a lot of love, uh, even if it was there were constraints on it. Uh, we actually saw, we experienced a kind of human flourishing within these spaces that was sacred and it formed us and the people formed us. And that's exactly why I think it can be, it's, it's so painful when these places that became sacred for us for a reason, they became sacred not because someone told us they were sacred spaces, but because we really did have holy experiences that are there. The trouble is not with the idea of sacred space, because I think everybody needs sacred space. The trouble is that all too often, sacred spaces, um, the people inside of them become elite about their idea of sacred space. So it becomes uh, not just that this is a space that we can meet with God, but this becomes, this is the only place where you can meet with God. Uh, the trouble's not the idea that we as a people uh, can come together here and we can have an encounter with God, but we're the only people who can have an encounter with God. Those other folks cannot. That's where it, it becomes a problem. 
And the only way I'm convinced anybody ever breaks out of this is when they walk precisely this kind of path of disillusionment and despair, which at the time just feels like losing everything. Well, I'm already saying a lot of things. And again, I want to... um, I want to have a bit of back and forth, but since it's release day, it just seemed good and right that maybe I should do a little bit of a reading. Uh, hopefully, we'll not read anybody to sleep at this time of day, but I do want to do just a short, uh, at least a little bit of a reading. Well, I said a short reading, you know, I'll read until it feels like it's right to stop. How about that? From this first chapter called The Road Called God Forsaken, and this is uh, a subsection that I called An Accidental Church, and it goes like this. So these two men are out walking down their own lonely road, looking like no one in particular. If you had passed them as the day turned to dusk, you might not have noticed the haunting. From a distance, it's hard to tell the difference between a gate of a person walking to somewhere and the gate of a person that's walking away from something. These are weathered working class men used to bearing any unwanted emotion behind the eyes. You would have to walk closer to feel the death that hung in the air between them. Heartbreak hung between them too, like the man stretched out between two thieves. They are grieving the loss of every dream they had, the loss of religion, the loss of tradition, the loss of promise, of yearning. It's as if all their desires bled out with him, so that now all they have is the road ahead of them. All they have is the walking. To stand still would be to let the horror catch up with them, and that's just not an option. When the leather of their shoes starts to rub their feet raw, the sores are a welcome distraction from the harsh rub of reality against these open wounds. They walk in silence those first few miles, because what is there to say, really? while walking away from the city where you watched love die. The day grows as heavy as their hearts, and the dam breaks, and they finally begin to speak of the unspeakable. They begin to speak of what happened. Tears finally pour forth from these weathered sailors. Torrents of grief upon grief upon grief. The men have lost their appetite for holy things. So there are no pretensions of piety, and there is no God talk. Yet in the simple act of sharing their deepest pain, their sacred grief, something undeniably holy happens between them. But they're not building altars to any gods here, only to their own grief, only commemorating the holiness of their own pain. They're not talking about the power of God, but the spectacle of watching God die. Their ancestor Jacob gathered stones to commemorate his wonder of the Almighty. Why not gather some for their sorrow now, when sorrow is all they have left? Most who walk the road called God forsaken walk it alone, at least for a little while. But in that moment, the men feel something powerful that binds them together. It's like a hymn that binds people together, like stories passed down between father and son. But this is not heritage or hope that's holding them close. This is the shared sensation of primal grief. 
The things that they saw and felt, they saw and felt together. The hope and faith that they lost, they lost together. A kind of shared sacrament. They have no hope for resurrection, only memories in which the dead seem as likely to haunt you as to help you. They have no hope at all, only the shared sensation of their hearts being ripped out. The only thing redemptive about their pain is that it's not solitary. It is shared. It is not the sometimes performative grief of funerals, but the savage, unpolished agony only those who have had someone they loved more than life ripped from them can truly know. There is a kind of grief that's so bottomless that it, like love and wonder, is transcendent. It's big enough to get lost in. It's the kind of space that's left when a true believer believes no more. As with making love and speaking in tongues, there are no words for it. There are no prayers to pray and no hymns to sing. Only two humans abandoning manners, going all the way into a pain too deep for words, letting themselves get carried away in the cadence of mourning. Do you remember when this happened? Do you remember how it felt when that happened? There is no other word for what was happening between them except holy, holy, holy. So as the two companions walk away from home, they do the only brave and noble thing for no brave or noble reason. Out of sheer desperation, they name their searing pain. They do not contain their heartbreak, their rage, or their questions. Faithfulness and fidelity won't sustain them now. Honesty is the only remaining virtue. Sorrow gushes from their open mouths like the blood, water, and gore that poured out from Christ's wounded side. They speak the unspeakable to each other on the long, hard road away from God. That's a happy excerpt from <laughs> the road away from God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be silly. I just realized, it's like, oh, what? Like, that's that's as heavy as that's about as heavy as it gets, I suppose. But it felt important somehow to. It felt important somehow to read that particular section today, because it felt important to name something of that pain, and that's a lot of what. I hope that the book does is not so much tell you something you don't know, but give you language for experiences that you've already had and help you find yourself on the journey. Now, um, because it's not all death and despair is not the idea. Uh, Spoiler alert, as someone who is a believer in Jesus and, in fact, right now is having some really profound and particular experiences of resurrection. I am one of those people who believes that there's life on the other side, that there's life on the long side of dying. Oh, Shane Claiborne, pumped about your book, bro. Congrats. That's so sweet, friend. Thank you. That's really, really kind. Love you, Shane. Uh, You're wonderful. Um, So thankful for your work and witness always. But I think the thing that this story shows us so vividly is that if there is going to be life on the long side of dying, that's always going to come in a form that we don't expect. In fact, if there is a kind of resurrection, uh, 
then the form that it takes is almost always going to be a form that we don't recognize. So what it feels like, actually, is that we're still on that same path of ashes, descent, grief. It feels like we're still walking the path of death. What happens in the story, actually, is not some new miracle. There's not something else that happens. Uh, the only thing that really, really happens to disciples is that a little bit later, over a shared meal, over shared bread and shared wine, is that there is a moment of recognition. Their eyes are opened. They come to see the world that they've already been experiencing. And thank you, Beth. Thank you, Rob, for being so kind. I really appreciate that. They come to see the world that they've already been experiencing through a different point of view. But they're not transported anywhere. They don't go somewhere else. And so many of the things that I'm sure they longed for, I'm sure the things that they would have prayed for, the things that they would have named as this is what would have to happen. It, that's not what happens. Instead, there's this moment of illumination where the world that they already know and that they already are immersed in, they're able to see from a different point of view. And I feel like that's the best I can hope for, uh, not to make miracles happen, but that is my prayer really for the book, is that somehow it might unlock the capacity to be able to see your own story, your same story from a different point of view, uh, in a way where there might be some surprises. But interestingly enough, and this is the reason why, and I'm you know wrapping this up, I want to go back and forth a bit here, but the reason I think it's so important to kind of lean into this thing of God-forsakenness is that I actually don't think you get to that kind of moment of recognition. I don't think you get to that moment of transcendence, wonder, like whatever, unless you walk this road as far as it takes you. And I realize even in saying it, that, that probably sounds stark and heavy, but it's how I think about it. You walk the road as far as it takes you. Um, how... How long do you walk the road? <laughs> However long the road goes. And I, I feel like if any attempt to sort of prematurely disrupt that process is just not good. Um, but when will, they be, when will there be new life, right? Like when will you see some kind of resurrection? Well, you'll see it when you see it. Um, our eyes are open. Uh, we're able to discern, hear other things when the time is right for us to experience those things. But until that time, I think sometimes what we need is the grace to know that it's okay to be on the path that we're on and not to blame ourselves and not to constantly second guess and say, well, if I'd have turned this way and not that, if I'd have made this decision and not that. Because by the way, a whole lot of people who come from sacred spaces who are well-intentioned will tell us that all we need to do is to go back to the sacred space uh, the same place in the same way that we were before, which, by the way, um, and I do talk about this in the book, the disciples do return to, the, to Jerusalem later, but in a very different way. Um, it's a whole question I wrestle with in the book is this question of, is it possible to really go home again? I know this much. There is no going back, really. Not the same way you came. Uh, there's, there, there's no simple, just retrace your steps. That, that works for almost no one. If it works for you, praise God, that's great. I don't know much of anybody it works for. Most of the time, you can't really go back, and there's a way of coming full circle, which I think is what the disciples do. But I don't think coming full circle is the same thing as going back. Going back is simply not 
an option. Oh, by the way, that's a great question. When is the uh, audiobook available? I'm not able to find it on Audible yet. It's because it's not recorded yet. I'm supposed to be recording it here in the next couple weeks. So it should be out hopefully in about a month on audiobook. I'm sorry that's not out yet. Um, I wish it, that it were. But um, just to lean in this just for one more second. So, uh, I, and again, I hope this doesn't sound not hopeful. You know, my, my sense is, uh, I don't know if this has been this way for you. I've done so much second guessing. If I'd have gone this way, not that, all those kind of questions. Um, there's so much judgment that other people place on us and that we place on ourselves when we're walking the road called God forsaken. And so my hope is that actually this would be a tremendously liberating message. Hi, Johnny swim. I assume, I think is that, I don't know if that's Abner or Amanda. I think that's normally Abner. I love you guys. So good to see you. Um, but I actually really just hope that this would give you the resource to be able to name the road that you're on and to do that without judgment. Because what this, the way that this story functions when the canon, I, I, I just want to scream this from the housetops right now. It's feeling so fresh to me all over again. God walks with us on the road called God forsaken. So actually this experience of deep disillusionment, despair, uh, abandonment apparently is 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 a path that we're supposed to walk. Jesus walks with them on keep in mind the disciples think they're walking away from God. Jesus walks with these disciples and what ostensibly is the road away from God, which is really the premise of this whole thing is that we have a God who will walk with us even on the road away from God. Uh, I, I, I people ask me sometimes kind of like, well what because they're scared to death. Well, what will happen if I, if I ask these questions honestly? Uh, what if I follow the questions where they take me and end up not believing? And I'm kind of like, so, what would happen? Would it really? Would it be the? Would it be the end of the world? I don't know how you feel about this. I'm pretty convinced at this point that faith is not faith. That you don't can't really believe anything that we're coerced into. If someone's uh, got a gun barrel to your head and they say you have to believe this or else i don't think that's really belief i think it's coercion i think that's manipulation i think then you say what you need to say you do what you need to do in order to stay alive don't think that's the same thing as actually believing anything so uh, actually coming to a place where you feel like that you have a choice where you actually feel like um there's agency uh where you actually feel like that you're not being forced to just mouth some kind of words, uh, that you're actually able to follow the questions where they lead you? Because that's the thing. I'm really convinced at this point, you can't, you can't be afraid of the questions. I mean, you can be. I'm afraid of the questions to a point, right? But I'm saying like big picture wise, to move forward with our lives, you can't be afraid of the questions because the questions take you everywhere. Questions take us where we're supposed to go. Questions take us where we need to go. And I don't think there's anything good that can be gained by simply burying our heads in the sand and pretending that it's not happening. Again, click our heels together, uh, say the thing like three times. What's, what's, what's so weird, right, is that that's whole faith systems are built on that. And that's what we're told that we're supposed to be doing all the time. Adjust our reality, right? Alter our reality by speaking words, uh, by believing harder. And it, the boy, does by the way, man, I feel like this is going to be, I just feel like this is going to be liberating for somebody right now. I don't know why, if your experience has been like mine. How stressful is that 
trying to figure out if you've mustered up enough sincerity, if you've mustered up enough authenticity. How do you know if you believed hard enough? Even if you've said the right words, if you've mouthed the right things, how do you know if you're wishing hard enough? Uh, is 62% faith enough? Or do you have to get to an 85% threshold? Uh, do we need to get like up in the 90s somewhere before God accepts this in some way? Like how much belief do we have to have in order for that to be accepted? I, do you know how m much of my life I've spent not just doing certain religious things, but then redoing them over and over again simply because I don't, I didn't think that I felt it strong enough the first time. I didn't believe it hard enough the first time. So then let's pray for forgiveness for the same thing 800 times because I'm not sure if I was repentant enough, humble enough, if I meant enough, the first 750. So maybe if I keep saying it, then ultimately I will mean it enough. Maybe if I keep reciting the confession long enough, then ultimately I will be bolstered enough to where it's going to be strong. Y'all, that is a really stressful way of living. And uh, part of what I'm come to believe about this kind of spiritual path that I think is given in the Emmaus Road story is a grace that allows us, it's not so much about professing, and there's never a time and place to profess anything. I mean, you know, verbal witness in general, even in terms of like resistance to some of the things that are happening in the world, I think it's important. But um, it's this isn't so much about what you say. This is much more about the path that you walk. It's about where, and I think being able to do that in a way that's truthful, uh, where there's authenticity, where we're able to be integrated. I, I just think there's a great deal of power in that. Hey, um, a couple things real quick. Thank you, Jules. Uh, this is so compelling. Can't wait. That's so nice. Rob said, I love the whole image of the road away from God is a road God travels with us. Sometimes the most Jesus-y thing we can do is leaving a space that we thought contained the whole revelation of God. Ooh. You know, Rob, um, even though I feel like I'm saying things like that, that lands heavy, like reading it right now, because I think it's true. But I think it can be such a hard word to hear. And one of the reasons I think people struggle so much with discernment here is there's the sense that if you feel like the journey now necessitates that you have to leave a place that you've been, it feels like it renders a judgment on that place or on those people, like that season wasn't important or those things weren't true. And I really don't think that's how this works. Sometimes we get really good things from certain kind of spaces uh, that maybe were really necessary in that for that season of our lives, maybe have deep meaning for us. But, but in order to get to the next place, in order to move on, uh, in order to flourish, in order to grow, um, there's a way that we have to keep walking. And to continue that walk doesn't mean that we didn't pick up anything from value. And it doesn't have to entail even uh, some sort of disrespect or dishonor. People will tell us that, you know, that to, that to leave a thing or to leave a form of a thing is to disrespect it. But that's really not true, is it? Actually, um, and I know uh, Father Rory uses the transcend and include language a lot, uh, but I think it's desperately important that we're able to pick up the stuff that we need from certain places that we've been and yet still have the capacity to keep moving, keep walking, and understand that that's, that that's going somewhere anyway. Well, uh, I've already been doing this for a minute. So um, again, uh, it is release day for the road away from God. Uh, this is also a live Zeitcast right now, which is kind of fun. We're talking about the road called God Forsaken. 
Uh, I'm going to take just a minute for a quick plug before I open it up just for a few more minutes. Tonight, we are doing a, um, a book launch a release party here in Edmond. So at Commonplace Books, would love for you to join for some wine, cheese, snacks, all the things. So hope you can come for that. Oh, um, I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning. Stop me if I did. Uh, but I just, I'm so ridiculous because releasing a, a book, there's really not anything else I should be doing. But right now, it does feel like sort of the the leash is off creatively. So I'm just flinging stuff out right and left. Uh, I put out a little podcast that I just recorded on preaching. I don't claim that I'm a great preacher, but it's something I've done a lot of and I do care about it. So I just put a little podcast on preaching, preaching a suspense, otherness, and tenderness. Uh, you didn't ask me to do a masterclass on preaching, but if I was asked to do it in an hour, this is what that would be like, except then I'd take an additional 10 minutes or so because I am, in fact, a preacher. So uh, that's up on the Zeitcast as well if you want to check that out. Uh, yeah, Ashley, yes, and there can be great meaning and good fruit that comes out of a space or a season, and it can be a space of harm and hurt. And I found so much freedom when I finally admitted that. What a phrase. Goodness. Ashley, I wish I had that. I would have had that in the writing. Spaces of harm and hurt. It's not mutually exclusive. And I, I would just love for other people to be let off the hook the way that Ashley is letting us off the hook right now to be able to say that. Spaces can contain both harm and hurt. And one does not negate the other. It's possible to have nourishment, encouragement, uh, experiences that are life-giving and death-dealing on the same space. Um, how do we know this? Well, have you been in any relationship? <laughs> uh, have, you, have you been reflective on yourself at all, <laughs> right? How do you contain all the things that you do? Um, Bob Dylan has this great song off the last record, I Contain Multitudes, and it's all these, like, these great turns of phrases in that way. I mean, you know, uh, that capacity for terror and hope lives in us and uh, it certainly lives inside of communities so how is it possible that there could be a lot of healing but then also a lot of uh, toxicity inside the same space well uh, kind of the same way it can happen inside of us which by the way if I can say this um, that's one of the things that does as much as it frustrates me like deeply frustrates me a lot of things that are, have happened and are happening in faith spaces right now where people are just not willing to be honest with the truth about um, with, where people are just not willing to be honest about uh, just the, the hard truth of some of the things that are going on. That's something that can be real frustrating for, for me the other direction is the need to so demonize and villainize the spaces that people come from that everything needs to be turned into all evil. I'm naming no names here. And it's it actually, it's not about a person, but uh, there was reading, watching some things about uh, <laughs> some place in particular. And that was my thought a while back because I felt like everything just made it sound like it was the empire in Star Wars. And it was all, it had this connotation of these evil people with their evil schemes in a way that made it sound like that all they ever did, like they got out of the driveway just hatching maniacal, like, and like, and this, and this cult has spread around the world. They want to spread, they want to spread their message to their neighbors. They have associate churches that will also tell the same message 
to neighbors. They've learned to use, uh, they've learned how to capitalize on human emotion in order to spread their message. Ooh, and it was like, I'm like, oh, they've learned to capitalize on human emotion to spread their message. So that would be all advertising, all TV shows, all art, all movies. I got news for you. Everybody has learned how to <laughs> how to use and work on human emotion to say something. Do you hear the point that I'm making? It made it sound like everything that's ever happened in one, in any of those spaces must have just been intrinsically evil and and horrible all the time. Like all this is is you know sacrificing. Uh, goats and virgins and then putting the name of Jesus out front and like can you believe can you believe that normal people can get wrapped up in this well of course of course I can believe that not just because I believe in our capacity for self-deception because also it's not all that because uh, you can have like really deep systemic uh, greed and selfishness and abuse of power and at the same time somebody go to an AA meeting on a Tuesday night and get clean and get in recovery or have no sense of meaning or purpose in their life and heard a talk one day that makes them feel like uh, they can be connected to something larger and make constructive changes in their life. And what I don't like about that all or nothing kind of cha- uh, uh, kind of thinking, thank y'all for preaching with me right here because I feel like I need some amens here. What I don't like about that kind of all or nothing thinking is that then people aren't given, people feel like it's not helpful and when people are trying to disentangle those things inside of them. Uh, because what that essentially says, what it makes people feel, is that then if they did have some experience, well, what if you did get clean? What if you did get sober? What if uh, you did have a relationship that was mended inside of a thing? Now you have to discount that because you accidentally became an evil person who was far part of the evil thing. Well, no, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. And that's a really high bar for anything else. I, I would love it if not just in religious spaces, but in terms of art, in terms of so many arenas, if we were given a little bit more room to have some discernment, to be able to say, like, here, here are some things that are healthy, positive, good that have happened. Here are some things that have happened that might even be really, really terrible. But one doesn't necessarily negate the other. And I think it's important that people have the resources to be able to name and uh, and just kind of nuance things in that way. So you don't feel like you have to cut out whole parts of your life because guess what you can't uh, in the same way that you, that relationships don't work that way. Um, relationships that you've had uh, in family, romantically, like whatever, probably a uh, how is this for some kind of prophetic word? I feel like this is like when a televangelist gets on and says, "Like there's somewhere, there's someone out there experiencing back pain." <laughs> so how's this for a prophetic word? I'm guessing that you've had relationships that probably your experience with most of them. I'm going to say all of them because I'm that sort of prophetic thinker. It's been it's been a, a deeply mixed bag, right? A really mixed bag. Uh, that Ashley's phrase that I love so much about kind of the the sort of hope and the help and the harm, you you know that you've experienced that in the context of the same relationship. So anyway, I just think it's really really good. Uh, Rob just said, "If Amen." If someone is entirely antagonistically demonizing the place where I had a good experience, it'll be much harder to accept the real criticisms that might also be bring up, which I think is also that's also important to say is that it works the other direction. Is that just because I've had a healing experience somewhere or with the people or whatever doesn't mean uh, that there's also not the capacity for people.
people to really get hurt because uh, that's often where people will go. It's like, well, I had a good experience. Therefore, if someone else says they experienced trauma, well, obviously they're lying. Well, no, no, it's it's entirely uh, there really is a uh, there. There's room for both of these things. So, wow. Yeah, I said uh, got into more than I wanted to. But y'all are y'all are giving me some good stuff here. Before I shut this thing down, and we're going to do the book launch here in just a little bit, does anybody have any questions about the book or anything we talked about so far? I definitely want to engage as much as I can. Um, I'm also on the ro- uh, going on the road a little more than usual right now. So the actual road, I'm, um, after we get done tonight, I'm going to Indiana. Uh, actually, I'm going to see the war on drugs tomorrow night. Uh, I'm not, for those of you who might be a different generation, I'm not going to be using drugs. The band is called The War on Drugs. I'm going to see The War on Drugs with my friends, and I'm preaching at Gobin United Methodist on Sunday morning, and we're doing an event Sunday night at the Whisk Greencastle that's bourbon tasting. That's going to be great. Next week, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Baker Bookhouse at their bookstore. uh, Next Tuesday night, Park Road Books in Charlotte the next Thursday night, uh, Mission Gathering Charlotte the next Sunday morning. Steven said, your book arrives tomorrow. I'm so so glad it's on its way. Hey, Jules, Sydney, you know what? I'm desperate to get back to... Australia. I really, I want to make that happen. So we let's, uh, let's speak that into existence. <laughs> I, I get faithy when I need to, when I got something I really need to make happen, I will click my heels together. I'm ready to speak Australia into existence right there. Uh, cause I love it so much and I want to get back. Well, if anybody has any other questions or thoughts, I'm happy to, uh, to, to, to engage them. If not, uh, we can shut this thing down. And the plan is to jump back on next week and again, make this a bit of a series. I'm not, um, the idea is not to exactly recapitulate everything that's in the book, uh, but sort of riffs inspired by the book. So this is the road called, uh, God forsaken. Uh, next week we'll talk a little bit about God on the road away from God. Tabitha, thank you so much for, uh, celebrating with me and for being so supportive. That really, uh, that really does mean a lot. And all the ways that y'all support are much appreciated. Um, any, uh, you know, I hate being that guy because I feel like when you're a writer, people are always asking you to do these things. Uh, but it has been a minute. Uh, I, I think it's in, the shipwreck came out in 2016. And it's 2022. That's hard to believe. So uh, certainly any liking, commenting, sharing, reviewing. I don't know if the book has any reviews uh, on Amazon yet. So anything like that, super helpful. Um, anything you feel led to do, thank you so much for everything. And oh, can't wait to get my copy. I love How to Survive a Shipwreck. That's so kind. Thank you. That um, that's that's really really generous. Uh, in the meantime, I hope that you're finding uh, some grace on the road that you're walking, and you know you're not walking alone. Which I'm not going back into preaching, but that again is really so much the catalyst in writing this book is trying to um, name some experiences in ways that I hope. Uh, will make you feel like you're a little less lonely on this road that you're walking. Because actually, not that I feel like, you know, I'm everybody's companion or something. But that's, for me, that's part of the miracle of the story is exactly when we find somebody, a person, a group of people, like whatever, where we really have permission to share the depths of our pain. That's where the really holy stuff happens. It's why a lot of people instantly, their um, most profound experiences, their most sacred spaces are not in the context of a church, because oftentimes it's in those kind of sacred spaces where people feel like they have to be the least honest about what's going on, when in reality, 
our deepest, holiest sacred experiences, which, by the way, um, I think, don't you sense that even when you you're watching a film or you're reading a book or something and there's some there's like an expression of some pain or like something that's just like like deeply true that breaks you open and you something in you knows that that experience is holy uh you know that you're breaking open to something larger that even though it's your experience really it's something common in the human experience and i think that's really what brings us together ultimately what unites anybody, really, what bonds us, anyone, in any way, really, is not so much our shared victories, triumphs, whatever. It really is shared pain uh, that does that, which, you know, and I'm not all about pain. I'm not a masochist. I don't, uh, I've been going, I, there's something I've been uh, saying lately, you know, in a, now with another book that talks a lot about pain and trauma and loss and that kind of thing. I'm not asking anybody to try to find these things because I don't think you have to. Uh, your, your, your pain will find you. Uh, same thing I say about like uh, taking up your cross is, you know, you don't have to look to find some big hairy thing and I'm going to make this big sacrifice or something. Oh no, your cross will find you. Like every, everybody gets one. Uh, you'll, you'll find that. You just need to, if you just live long enough. I had a seminary professor actually um, that said years ago, and it was so interesting because he was a really, actually he was a really charismatic man. I don't mean charismatic like uh, uh, big personality. I mean like charismatic, charismatic. Like as in he was, probably some people would think he'd be a little cuckoo that way. Like he was real, uh, like kind of a prophetic sort. But he said this thing in class one day. I, I'm so glad I thought of this. I'm really ending on this. He said this thing in class one day that I thought was so raw and so shocking I mean, it, just the honesty of it, it just took me aback because he was actually more in the way I was talking about before, kind of a, like a really a faith person uh, in ways that, you know, most of my academic experience, uh, the, the people who were deeply faithful, they weren't like that. So he was kind of on a different wavelength. And it was just kind of shocking to hear him say this. This is what he said. I remember he, he looked at us and he said, like real animated, he said, you know that verse where David said, I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Well, the only reason he said that is because he didn't live long enough. Because if you live long enough, and by the time David would have gotten older, you live long enough, you see that uh, the righteous absolutely are forsaken and the righteous do beg for bread. Uh, and I just thought it was just a shocking thing to say. <laughs> but I was like, wow. <laughs> David said, I've been young and I've been old, uh, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread because he had to live long enough. Anyway, I'm not trying to be pessimistic for that. But actually, I remember even at the time it being weirdly hopeful because here was this person who obviously had was really like this this faith, that kind of faith person who was like, you know, like claiming the things and like whatever. And I just thought there was just such a human moment there. It's like, whoo, what a moment of like profound, like whatever. Like, no, everybody, if they if they live long enough, is going to bear witness in themselves and in others to the experience of God forsakenness. I thought that was really profound because it gave a sense of permission. And I remember even in that space, was it a place I was would have been expecting that kind of permission? So... 
Anyway, oh, hey, uh, thank you. Uh, oh, thank you, Alex, uh, sending love back to Houston. Uh, it's so good to hear from you. Oh, and Dr. Sister Clark, your words gave lyrics to the music. That's so kind. My friend, Michael, um, love you and bless you, my friend. Uh, Michael is a beautiful, beautiful soul. And oh, Jane, Gunter, uh, dear friends of mine from Oxford, Mississippi, doubt brings on panic. Uh, don't lose that doubt brings on panic when you've uh, been a believer your whole life and based everything on it pure panic and it, boy that's so true thanks for speaking to what lots of us experience that really that's true right I think when our whole world has been based on needing to believe hard enough it feels like we fall apart the moment that doubt enters in and so how what a what a gift right not because I'm giving a great gift but in general to feel like no we can have those moments and don't have to panic uh, and that maybe even, which is, I'm not trying to go back into the thing. I'm stopping. Maybe is really for me one of the most profound things about this story. The disciples have to walk this path of disillusionment and despair. Same way that uh, in the wilderness narrative in Luke's gospel, it is the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that actually drives Jesus into the wilderness. It's the Spirit takes him there, not the devil. Uh, everybody talks about that, you know, the three temptations, that Satan in the wilderness and all that. Satan doesn't lead Jesus, Jesus in the wilderness. It's the spirit that drives Jesus in the wilderness. And I just, if, if there's anything I would love to be able to do right now, it would be to help people get beyond the kind of self-flagellation of uh, if I'd done this, not done that, believe this, name, claim this, right, whatever, then I wouldn't be in this place. I would love for you to be able to let yourself off the hook a bit and just be present to the road that you're on. Because here's the thing, and I think that's so important. If there is any kind of resurrection, if there's life on the long side of dying, if there's anything else that's out there, then I think the only way that, man, I'm feeling this right now. I think the only way that that happens and the only way we come to it is paying attention on the road that we're on. You hear what I'm saying? So if the path that you're on is one of uh, despair and death and grief, if it's ashes, if it's all those things, you got to pay attention to that road that you're on. There is no other way. You don't wish yourself on to a different path. If there is life on the other side of death, then the only way I think we'll see it, the only way we'll um, find it, will be paying attention while we're still on that road that goes straight into the grave. I think that's what it looks like. So we have to be awake. And I think any of these strategies, faith systems, whatever they might be that are essentially coping mechanisms that keep us from naming what is, that keep us from uh, being truthful with ourselves, keep us from naming reality, ultimately don't, don't help us get anywhere that's good. So I hope that is, uh, I hope that's encouraging in some way. Oh, hey, yes, um, I do hope to get to North Texas. Uh, Denton, man, uh, Dallas area, I, I really need to make that happen because it has been too long. Nicole was saying we we're trying to set something up that area. We really are. So if anybody, if anybody out there wants to invite me, <laughs> feel free. It's a three-hour drive. I can do that pretty easy. So anyway, I need to let y'all go. And I guess I need to go because we're doing a book launch party here in just a little bit. Thanks so much for being on this road with me. Really appreciate all y'all and we'll talk real soon. Thanks again. Road away from God wherever books are sold, as they say. Love y'all.